I've been reading and studying in the book of 1 John considerably over these last weeks, and I am hoping uh, to preach a number of messages Sunday evenings on John and that book of 1 John. When it comes to the apostles, we know a lot about Peter and Paul, but John, not just so much. And I must say that my own soul has been blessed and stirred as I have come to uh, really dig into uh, this book of the first letter of John. And uh, it's not an easy book to outline. Uh, there seems to be no real clear goal and, and, and breakdown of compartmentalizing, so on. But uh, there is uh, something that I have uh, discovered, and I want to share that with you probably next week. Tonight will be introductory. Tonight will be more an appreciation of the man, John the Apostle, before we get into his epistle. And then before we can appreciate the man, we have to appreciate the times in which he ministered in the latter half of the first century. As you know, John was the, the one who lived longest, lived a natural death. Uh, Paul was executed somewhere in the mid-60s AD, and so you had 30-plus years where John was really the man carrying the load of directing the church uh, forward into uh, the will of God. And there were battles, and there were challenges, and praise God, there were victories. And as we look into the life of John, we will learn some of those things. Now, to help us tonight, we're going to start in the book of Revelation, where we find John on the Isle of Patmos. And we're going to read the opening verses of Revelation and uh, discover uh, that he was there uh, in exile, but hadn't lost his faith, hadn't lost his goal uh, to be a faithful witness to the Lord. So we'll read the, the first uh, 10 verses of this chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from God, which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and also with which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading to your heart tonight and help us as we come to our message this evening. Let's just bow in prayer a moment. Dear Lord, we thank Thee for the joy of coming to look at this life of John the Apostle. We thank Thee for the grace of God at work in him, uh, a fisherman, one who was not, at least in his youth, well-educated, and yet a mighty instrument in your hand. And what a blessing to your church through a long, useful life. Thank you for such testimonies here tonight. Thank you for those in this congregation who have been serving Thee for so many years and still pressing on. And we wish we could say tonight that we are in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We thank Thee, Lord, we can say that in some measure. But oh, that You might fill us all the more and give us fresh insights into Your Word and into Your truth. And so we pray that you'll bless this study to our hearts and speak to us and minister to our souls. Pray for help, Lord, in this pulpit. I ask for your presence here in our Savior's great name. Amen. Another question I have for you tonight is, are we New Testament Christians? Everything in our faith should go back to the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that we rule out the Old Testament. It just means that we worship in the same style as New Testament believers. And if we had a time machine that could go back to the first century and drop us in listening to John leading a service, it wouldn't be very different uh, from this service here tonight. Indeed, our goal is to ape and to model our worship on what was practiced in the early church. Now, to answer that question, there are a few things that we need to consider tonight. I just want to give you a number of questions. How did they meet? How many were there? What did they believe? How did they worship? Why were they persecuted? And then the final question, were they faithful? How did they meet? 
mostly in homes. They would not have had dedicated, specialized facilities or buildings to meet in. There are a number of references. I have counted five, at least, where it talks about churches in believers' homes. Because, well, very soon they were not even in the synagogues. They were chased out. They did not have the liberty to preach the cross and preach Christ and his resurrection in the synagogues. That was their first opportunity, but soon that door closed to them. So uh, they were soon out of the public arena, out of the temple, out of the synagogues, and restricted to homes. And that, of course, reduced numbers. Uh, Homes could not have been that large, and therefore their numbers would have been relatively small. Now, how many Christians were there? We read, of course, in the book of Acts of one day's conversion after Peter's sermon of 3,000 converts, later of 5,000 converts, all in the area of Jerusalem. Now, that seems fantastic, phenomenal, and it was. It was a mighty, mighty work of the Spirit. But you think of the city of Jerusalem, especially at Passover, would have been a city of approximately a million people. And you have, say, 10,000 Christians. That narrows down to 1%. One in every 100 people would have been a Christian in the city of Jerusalem in these decades of the first century. That's not many. That's a very lonely experience. If you were in an educational situation or employment and only one in a hundred was a Christian, you are very much alone. And it was not until the fourth century, until the 300s, that Christianity really flourished. I remember looking at a Bible handbook, and they sought to diagram church growth by red dots in the Mediterranean world, the Roman world. And in the first century, They were very sparse. Well, you've got seven churches in Minor Asia. You've got various other outshoots. You have Thomas away out into India. You've got North Africa, a few red dots representing churches, Spain, um, Italy, one or two, one in Rome, one in the coast of Italy. And so in the first century, when John was ministering, this was small. This even was intimidating. And there are more Christians in Phoenix tonight than would have been in the city of Rome around that time. Now that should be an encouragement to us. That should help us to see what is possible, that God is able to build his church even in very lean times. Now we come to the bigger question. <clears throat> in that first, question, uh, first century, what did these early Christians believe? Well, the two big things, Christ's death and resurrection. Those two things go together. They believed in the scriptures of the Old Testament. That's pretty much what they had until toward the end of the first century when the other 
books of the New Testament were added on. And so they believed in the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis right through uh, to Malachi. And our Lord Jesus put his stamp of approval upon those books. The apostles did too. And when they went preaching the gospel, they called the people to search the scriptures as Bereans to see if these things were so. They did not preach personal opinions. They preached what became known at that time as the common faith. And you read of that in the book of Jude. Jude verse 3. Perhaps you want to look at that. Jude verse 3. Uh, that's the little book just, just opening up the book of Revelation. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that we should earnestly contend for the faith. And that's one single body of doctrine, the faith. Now, we're going to be getting into the book of John, so I think it would be good to go back to chapter 1 in 1 John and to see how John put this at the opening of the book. John 1, verse 1. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. Forgive me if I say John. I, I mean, I always going to mean here 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So John was not giving his own personal opinion, nor his own perspective, or his own take on things. There was even at this time a consensus, a common faith, the faith that he was writing and preaching, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. That was not just John. That was John, uh, Peter, uh, all of those 11 disciples that were with our Lord Jesus. They witnessed the same things, the miracles of Christ, the prophecies of Christ, the very truths that he pre preached. And not only did they hear with their ears, they saw with their eyes. They saw the living Christ. And then, which our hands have handled of the Word of God. Now that's going to become very important because of the Gnostics. The Gnostics, or at least these early cedars of the Gnostic heresies, were teaching that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. But John says, we handled him. That which we have heard, seen, and handled. And it's not the testimony of one in a corner. It's the testimony of all the apostles, certainly all the writers of the New Testament and those who went out preaching the gospel in those times. Now, another big question is, how did the first century Christians worship? We know they were singers. We know they were singers. One of the last things that our Lord Jesus did on the night when he was betrayed was 
lead them into the garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. He led them in a hymn. Some say that was the Jewish halal, some of those psalms of ascent. They were singing people even on the night when the Lord was led and soon to be arrested. In the New Testament, the church became a singing church. They were exhorted to sing hymns and psalms, spiritual songs, and they sang hymns and psalms, help us to worship. And we're living in very privileged times when we have some amazing and beautiful hymns. And they're not just melodic, they're not just poetic, they teach. They ground us in the faith. And when you have a congregation united in singing the same truths, that is blessed. And that is how the early church worshipped, and that's how we are to worship today. Need I say that they preached from the scriptures? They had a teaching ministry. And if you had attended one of those house meetings, there would have been a heavy emphasis upon expounding. You read through the book of Acts and you'll find that comes up. They expounded the scriptures that these things were so. And so Christians have always made use of the Bible. And we today who have a completed Bible, the full and final revelation in God's word, are to be a committed people to the book. We preach the book, we preach the blood, and that leads us to the blessed hope. One other pointer I would give before I leave this perspective of how they worshipped, they did so with reverence and with repentance. There ought to be, in true worship, a reverence that is based on a spirit of repentance. Worship ought to be the expression of the believer's heart turning from the world and turning in faith to glory in our Lord. And those two things go together. Every time we we come to take our seat in God's house, there is to be an attitude, I am leaving the world and I am turning afresh to glory and to rejoice in the Lord. Now, with time tonight, I would take you to Acts chapter 2, and we would go through how they worshipped in the early church after Pentecost, and there are so many things that we could deal with there. Uh, They worshipped Christ. They prayed in Jesus' name. That was revolutionary. Praying in Jesus' name because they accepted he was the Messiah. They accepted he was the mediator. And that revolutionizes our worship. They had baptism and communion. They had the unity of believers. They had all things common. There was tremendous expression 
of a love for the professing people of God. And there was a a liberality, a generous hospitality one to another. And at the end of Acts 2, we read of how they did so with joy and with praise. And the world doesn't seem to get it, that you can repent of the world, turn from it, and yet have a worship that is joyful, that is thrilling and delightful to our souls. Now, the next thing we deal with, they were persecuted. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm building the steps now toward John. I'm dealing with the ministry of John. And we're getting to the things that John had to contend with. But we need to ask, why were those early Christians so persecuted? We have learned here tonight of John on this craggy, rocky island in exile. He was there as a a very old man. He was exiled there under the Roman emperor Domitian. And there was a wave of persecution against Christians under his rule and his authority. There was also a great divide between the world and the church. A divide that many people try to eliminate and narrow. But if you look at 1 John and chapter 2, verse 14... 1 John 2, verse 14, we see in his writing, I've written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you young men because you're strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. And then he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you can see this, this very clear dichotomy, this separation from the world and the worship of the Father. The one who professed that he enjoyed the world was not accepted as a Christian in the early church. There was this great divide. The early Christians were persecuted for their evangelism. They were bold. They would not stop preaching in Jesus' name. They were earnest in their outreach with the gospel. Another reason for their persecution is that the Romans and the Greeks were polytheists. That means they had many gods, many deities. Some of them would be quite inclusive and say, well, we can have Jesus as another God. We can have your Lord as one of the gods. But Christians couldn't accept that. They understood that Jesus alone is Lord. Some of the Roman emperors, especially those that were victorious in battle and made a a great name for themselves, They took on the role of being demigods. And they expected from their subjects to be worshipped as a god. And some of these waves of persecution 
that the Christians faced, uh, the challenge was bow down to the idol of the emperor, Nero, or Domitian, and others. And the Christian that refused to do so was greatly persecuted, exiled, or even put to death. And of course, the devil stirred up a great hatred against Christians. They became the fall guys for every event, every calamity that came upon the empire. When Rome burned in AD 64, they blamed the Christians, although there was no evidence, no grounds whatsoever that they had involvement in burning the city. But it was certainly the fall guy. It was the answer that showed to the populace that the emperor was doing something. And so there was a terrible wave of persecution. And that's what led to the the execution of Paul and Peter and other apostles at that time. Now, of course, the devil was at work. If you look at 1 John 5 and verse 19, you will see how he refers to the whole world lying in wickedness. That's the first century. Is it any difference in the 21st century? The whole world lieth in wickedness. Now that's a type of statement that there's, it's just like the sow wallowing in the mire. They lavish it up. They love wickedness. Wickedness is prosperous. It's exalted. It's desired. And that's certainly the state of our world today. And the devil stirs up a hatred against the name of our Lord Jesus and against those who preach him. Now, the question comes, were all of these first century Christians faithful? The answer is no. Many were, were, many chose death or exile or hardship of many kinds. But there were some who succumbed under pressure. And during the life of John, this became a tremendous problem in the church. What do you do with someone who was in the church showing a clear new life of the new birth, having a good testimony, and then under persecution, buckles, succumbs to pressure, bows to an idol for a moment to save their skin, and then afterwards they come back to the church. What do you do with them? There were many who were ungracious, who were very stern, and closed the church door to those who had denied the Lord in some way. There were others who remembered Peter and how he had denied the Lord under terrible pressure. 
And they took the line that we should forgive our brothers. Maybe set a period of probation and testing. But that we should welcome them back into the church. But over that problem, churches split. Churches were grieved. And their testimony, at least for a time, was greatly tarnished. And then, due to false doctrines, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we read here, little children, it is the last time. <coughs> Where am I reading from? 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, they were not all of us. And so, problems arose. Divisions arose. Heresies arose. And the church was greatly troubled. And John, because now he was outliving Paul and Peter and other apostles, was the man of the hour. In the first century, in the face of these false doctrines, in defending the very nature of the Lord Jesus, he was the strong defender of the faith. And through his own ministry and his own testimony, he stood for that apostolic doctrine right to the end of his long life, until about 100 AD, right to the end of that first century, as long as he lived. Now let me sketch for you a little bit of John's life. We, as I said, we know a lot about Paul. Paul the traveler, Paul the church planter, Paul the man who uh, was the writer of so many books in the New Testament, the man who was uh, the theologian. But John, what do we know of him? Well, we know that he was one of the youngest apostles. He was probably uh, in his 20s when he was called to be a disciple of Christ. He would have been a few years younger than the Lord himself. He would have been probably under 30 when he stood at Calvary and watched the crucifixion. A very young man. It is believed uh, that he lived in Jerusalem until about A.D. 58. Now that date comes up because it is the year of Mary's death. You know how the Lord placed his mother Mary into the care of John. And John was to take her into his home as his mother and care for her. Now there were family connections about that. And 
Mary lived until about 58 AD. And I am convinced from my studies that she and John lived in the area of Jerusalem right up until her death. Now that is contested because in Ephesus, where John later became, really became the center of his ministry, in Ephesus there is today a tradition of Mary's house. But it wasn't discovered until quite recently. And the reason that it was discovered was that a nun in Germany had a vision, a vision of a house where Mary lived. And someone published the things that she had seen in her visions. The Roman Catholic Church has never really verified it, yea or nay, but it became a tradition. And so there is a house in Ephesus today where tourists and religious people uh, look for the home where Mary lived, but it seems to be nothing but an empty tradition. It is universally allowed that John the Apostle spent the remainder of his life from that period around 58 AD after the passing of Mary in the city of Ephesus. And so for over 30 years, 40 years, he ministered based in Asia Minor. And John became the great center of authority, the spiritual light in Asia Minor, especially the opponent of those floating notions and fancies which ultimately ripened into the Gnostic heresies. Now, I'm quoting Fairbairn's Dictionary. Uh, that's the information that is presented there. And this agrees with what Paul said when he warned the elders at Ephesus that after his departure, false teachers would arise. And they certainly did. But Paul was gone. And John was the man who had to deal with these heresies. But he suffered persecution, sent to the Isle of Patmos, and in the old age, in the year of 95 AD, he was in Patmos when he received the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And it's likely that it was shortly after that, about 98 AD, that he wrote what we now call John's Gospel. And we have those writings. John died a natural death around 100 AD, while back in Ephesus, not in exile, but back in Ephesus. Now, John was known as the Apostle of Love, the Apostle of Love. His love for Christ. He was among the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He wrote affectionately to his fellow believers, referring to them as beloved or as my little children. 
and he called for love to the brethren as the proof of being born again. Now, John was called the apostle of love because he truly did love and he did enjoy the love of the Savior in his soul. And he's the only apostle that is referred to as the apostle whom Jesus loved. And so if it's possible for the Lord to have favorites, and I think it is, there are Christians who have sweet communion with the Lord on such an intimate, close level that others who are truly saved do not enter into that sweetness of fellowship. But John certainly did. And think about it. He was the only disciple to remain at the cross when our Lord was crucified. He's renowned, of course, for the apostle who lay on Jesus' breast, the apostle of love. And yet, he was by no means effeminate. He was definitely a strongly principled man and tough on the enemies of the Lord Jesus. And you read through this book of, of 1 John and you'll find out he calls them liars. John was always on the side of truth. And that burning passion in his heart for the Lord Jesus made him strong, made him fervent, made him firm to stand against such evils. There is a story, an account by Irenaeus and Polycarp, about a very wicked man called Corinthus, who was a contemporary of John. And when John would go to the bathhouse, now, that's not necessarily a place of evil, but a place of public washing. John learned that this wicked man, Corinthus, was coming into the bathhouse and that he was going to be dipping in the very same water. But then John the apostle rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing when he found that Corinthus was inside, and he exclaimed this, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthus, the enemy of truth, is inside. And in 1 John, you will find many, many references to John's love of the truth. He said, I have no greater joy than that my little children walk in the truth. And John was a giant of a man standing up for the truth of God's Word and for the gospel itself. Now, the love of God in his heart made John also a lover of his brethren. And it is remarkable in this book of 1 John how many times he refers to Love the brethren. That is a constant, continual theme in this book. 
And I want to tell you a story that is also in Fairburn's Dictionary, and it was recorded by Clement of Alexandria, who again would have been a contemporary. And it says, while addressing the brethren in a city near Ephesus, the Apostle John was greatly attentive to a youth, a young man of noble appearance, and committed him to the special care of the bishop of the place. Now, the bishop would be an elder, and he would have responsibilities to care for this young man's soul. And so this elder took him to his home, educated and trained him, and finally admitted him to baptism. When this was done, when he was baptized and confirmed in the faith, the elder slackened off in his watch over this young man. And the youth was drawn aside and from one evil course went on to another till finally he renounced all hope in the grace of God. He organized a band of robbers, placed himself at their head, and surpassed them all in cruelty and violence. A terrible disappointment. After a time, the Apostle John visited the city again. He inquired for the young man. The pastor told him with tears that the young man was dead. He was dead to God, said the pastor. He became godless and finally a robber. The Apostle John, hearing this, he rent his clothes and cried, To what keeper have I entrusted my brother's soul? And John procured a horse and a guide and hastened to the robber's fortress in the hills. He was seized by the sentinels. Take me, says he, to your captain. The young man in question being the very captain of this body of robbers. The young man, being the captain of the, at the sight of him, fled for very shame. And John said to the young man, Why do you flee from me? From me, your father, an unarmed old man. You have yet a hope of life, and I will give account to Christ for you. If I need be, I will gladly die for you. With many such words, he prevailed upon the prodigal, and he finally led him back to the church, pleaded with him, strove with him in fasting, urged him with admonitions, and never forsook him till he was able to restore him to the church. An example of sincere repentance and genuine renewal. That's the pastoral heart of John, the apostle of love. He was a man of action, a man who labored tirelessly and sacrificially for the care of souls. And that's the passion we need. That's the love we need 
to go out and win the lost and bring them under the gospel and pray that one day that they may be brought to serve and worship in the Lord's church. I have one more story for you about John. Remember tonight, this is an appreciation of the man. And I think in common reading and thinking about John, we we think of him just as a loving, kind jellyfish. No, John had backbone. He was bold. He was earnest. And he stood up for the Lord Jesus. The same author in that same dictionary by Furburn, it is recorded, when John had reached an extreme old age, he was too feeble to walk to the services. And so he was carried to them by young men. He could no longer say much. His voice was broken and tired. But as he was carried into the services, and as he had opportunity, he would repeat the words, Little children, love one another. And he would just say this over and over. When someone asked John why he constantly repeated the same words, he would reply, Because this is the command of the Lord. And because enough is done if this one thing is done. Little children love one another. This is indeed the 11th commandment. The Lord Jesus had said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. John's love put God first, others second, and self last. And repeatedly in this epistle, he wrote, love one another. Are we doing that? We need this love of the Lord burning in our hearts, that we might serve one another. And how needful in the Lord's church today. We wither, we divide, we get upset with one another, we rub each other the wrong way, and sometimes for the littlest offense, Christians can't get along. And the church suffers. The Lord's name suffers. How do we do this then? Well, I think you know John 3.16 well. Let's look at 1 John 3.16. And here is a text equally important. 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There is true love. 
And we need to take our pastoral theology, our Christian practice from John, to love one another, even to lay down our lives for one another. Now, in the first century, they did. They were, the sword was often put to their throats, and they would be called upon to expose a brother or a sister or a home where the church was meeting or when the next meeting might be that they might be all rounded up and persecuted. And there were many that loved their brethren even unto the death. This is Christianity. This is the power of the gospel. This is what love does. Not the whimsy, ecumenical love of of nothingness. But this is Christianity in action. Where we become as the Lord. To love his people and to love souls. And to be willing to endure for their sake and for the honor and praise of the Lord. Can we do that this week? Is there someone that you can put this in action? Maybe it's a brother or sister, and for some reason there's a problem. Can you, with prayer, with humility, go and seek to put it right? Invite them back to the house of God. Now I say this with no history in mind, knowing nothing of the affairs of this congregation. But we can be evidence of the love of Christ burning in our souls by winning people through sacrificial giving and living and witnessing. Is there someone that you can give the gospel to this week? That you can be a witness for the Lord Jesus? Give them a new beginning booklet. Give them a gospel tract. Print a section of the Bible and say, I'd like you to read God's word. I wouldn't expect you to go giving out Bibles to everybody. Might be someone that would appreciate that. But we can do many things to show that we truly do love the brethren. And this is New Testament Christianity. And as we dig into this book of 1 John, we're going to learn the power of it. And how it became the the explosion, the, the advancement of the church. Decade after decade, century after century. By the grace of God, through the faithful labors and service of God's people. Well, I have kept you already too long tonight. And I trust that God will, in grace, use his word in your heart and minister 
unto you.